Section 11 of A Bunch of Keys, Where They Were Found and What They Might Have Unlocked, a Christmas book, edited by Tom Hood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Key of the Nursery Cupboard, Part 2, by T. Hood. So with her little box, she took her departure for the village where her husband's nurse resided. It was a small fishing place, about 30 miles from Winchester to the north, and was to be reached without great difficulty. She had to take a fly from Winchester to Sibley Crossroads, where she took the coach that carried her within four miles of the seaside village, which was called Halborough. It was a poor little village depending for support on the Spratt fishery. It was situated on a belt of a marsh that extended for miles along the coast, and behind it stretched away leagues of rich cornland, protected from the floods which overran the marshes by an embankment. Halvorod itself stood on a little knoll which sometimes in severe winters, when the waters were out, became an island. It was a dreary, desolate place at the best of times, but it was at its dreariest and darkest pitch of desolation when Valerie reached it. Winter was far advanced, and the marshes were immense lakes of leaden-colored water, taking their color from the leaden sky whence the rain was descending in lashing torrents. Scarcely seen through the drift, a dark sea, edged with cruel white foam that looked like monstrous fangs devouring the coast, filled up the background of a straggling village of poverty-stricken houses, most of them mere hovels. To be sure, Valerie entered the place on the worst side. At the further end there was a handful of decent cottages and shops, for it was frequented by a few visitors in the summer and had humble pretensions to being a watering place. It was just large enough to be inhospitable, and just small enough to be scandalous. There were too many inhabitants to form the little family group which so many little hamlets present, and there were too few for them not to find everybody else's business more interesting than their own. Mrs. Booth's house was on the borders of the genteel quarter, but it was but a humble, shabby, genteel sort of place. It was a shop for the all-sorts kind, displaying in its window, which was not a shop window, but an ordinary one, bits of work, small articles of drapery, toys and sweets, and some modest stationery. The old woman did not drive a brisk trade, but she was not dependent on her shop, having a sufficient living in the pension she received from the old admiral. A green woman was Mrs. Booth, who had been the tyrant of nurseries, and had never softened it to any child but Regnaut. When the poor children of Halvorough came to expend their mites in her shop, no kindly impulse ever induced her to tilt the scale in their favor, by adding one sweet drop beyond exact weight, though, as we know, she only kept the shop as an employment, not as a livelihood. She gave Valerie no very warm reception. Reginald had told her of his marriage with the daughter of a French teacher, 
and had asked her to give his wife what advice and assistance she could when the time of trouble came, as come it must, he knew very well. Mrs. Booth at once concluded that he had been entrapped into a marriage by some designing girl, and took an immediate dislike to Valerie without having seen her. But she of course determined to do all that Reginald asked her to do. She would have died for him, have suffered any pain or discomfort to save him from trouble. It is curious to observe how often selfish people get this sort of devotion, and from how many people, women more especially. There was one thing which the old woman had made up her mind to do, to persuade Valerie, no matter by what means, to forego her claim to be Reginald's wife. It was a hard savage designed from one woman to another, an utter forgetfulness of all sympathy for her sex, but you remember that Mrs. Booth had only one tender place in her heart, her affection for the boy she had nursed. She gave up to Valerie the room over the shop. It was a dark, smoky chamber, but it was the best in the house, and it was better furnished than any of the others. When Mrs. Booth left the family to come here, Reginald's mother, who was a good, sweet woman, she might have changed her son's nature had she lived longer, gave her all the furniture of the nursery, with which the old woman had filled up this room. Over the mantelpiece hung an old picture of a child's head, not Reginald's portrait, but a portrait of a little girl, one of the Balfour family in which the nurse had said she saw strong likeness to the boy, and which she had begged of her mistress. It was not a valuable picture, and no one knew whom it represented, but if it had been twice as important, Lady Balfour could not have refused it to her boy's faithful and devoted nurse. Before Valerie had been with her long, Mrs. Booth perceived that she was in error as to her having entrapped Reginald. Her love for him was too real and unaffected. But the old nurse was nevertheless still determined, if possible, to separate her from him. He must marry someone worthy of him, not the child of a poor schoolmaster. She was not astonished to find that Valerie was ardently attached to Reginald. That seemed to her only natural. He was a sultan in her eyes who had only to throw his handkerchief to make a woman his slave for life. It was through this devotion that she first tried to work out her project. She pointed out to Valerie that she was ruining the man she loved. His place was high up in the world, but she was dragging him down. If you are as fond of him as you say, you must see that. His whole career is spoiled by your marriage, and he might have aimed so high. If I were placed as you are, I would never ask for recognition. Good heavens, woman! What are you counseling? For the happiness of the man you profess to be ready to die for. This is not as much as time. You will still be his wife in reality, whatever the world may think. But my father, my good name, what is he to your husband? And your good name, I thought you said you would die for him. Ah, this is worse than death, Mrs. Booth. Childish nonsense. And for this babyish stuff, 
you will make him lose his position? I do not understand you. Who will respect him when he has for a wife the discarded and suspected daughter of a French teacher at a school in Winchester? My father is a count in his own land, said Valerie proudly. The old woman laughed a short, sharp laugh. That will be a poor recommendation to my old master. He might forgive his marrying the child of an English beggar in the streets, but not the daughter of a French king. Ah me, what is to be done? sighed Valerie. But perhaps when my Reginald comes home he will let me tell Papa, and then we can wait patiently. I do not value even my good name so much as Reginald's happiness. Pshaw! Don't you know that your father will be only too delighted to blurt out the secret? It isn't every man whose daughter can marry a ball firm. Valerie felt that her father's pride would revel against the concealment. The future looked very dark. Do you think, said the old woman after a pause, that I was not born and educated for something better than a nurse's place? My father was a clergyman who took pupils. I was clandestinely married to one of them, the heir to a title. I knew that the discovery of our union would be his ruin, and I never claimed to be acknowledged with his wife. He died five years afterwards, but I did not seek recognition by his family. Other women, you can see, can do what you are called upon to do. Now, this story was partly true and partly false. It was true in the main. It was false in all the important particulars. Mrs. Booth's father was a clergyman and took pupils, and Mrs. Booth had been secretly engaged to one of them, but he was only the son of a wealthy tradesman and had jilted her after he went to college. Her father had become a bankrupt, had his comb taken from him for some questionable practices and died in the debtor's jail. This was why Mrs. Booth had been obliged to go into service as a nurse. But her story and her conversation were enough to make poor Valerie miserable. Still, however, the young wife hoped for the best and looked for Reginald's coming as the cure for all her doubts and difficulties. In due time, Valerie's child was born, a little girl. Ah, what a comfort there was in that child. The mother seemed to gather fresh strength and hope from looking into her baby's eyes. It delighted Mrs. Booth to see how wrapped up Valerie was in it, for she thought that it would usurp his father's place in her heart and make the resignation of him easier. But she somewhat miscalculated in this, as she discovered one day when she overheard Valerie talking to the little thing. Would they have me give you no father, darling? Oh, no, no! I would sacrifice myself, but not you, you poor little helpless angel. Heaven give me strength and life to watch over you. Then Mrs. Booth saw that she must change her tactics. She resolved to adopt a new plan. She must work on the mother through her child. And a very cruel plan it was that she devised. When Valerie was growing stronger, she came one day and sat down beside her on the bed. My dear, she said, 
Now that your trouble is over and you have a child to love, I had better tell you everything. You must be prepared for the worst. Valerie leant forward with starting eyeballs, speechless, trembling, faint with terror. You have been deceived. Captain Baldfern cannot recognize you as his wife. Cannot recognize me? No, for you are not really his wife. The ceremony was not legally performed. I have his own authority. Oh, impossible, impossible, cried poor Valerie, flinging herself down on the pillow and bursting into tears. It was not an intentional deception, said Mrs. Booth, who could not, even to do him a service, make Reginald appear criminal. But it is a barrier, an insurmountable barrier, to your ever being acknowledged. In fact, you cannot be acknowledged what you are not, his wife. But he loves me so dearly. I know he loves me. He will not desert me, for I am his wife. A mere oversight in the ceremony cannot be so fatal to our happiness. Cannot desert you? What has he done now? Did he not leave you to the certain chain of discovery and to the wrath of your father? Did he not bind you with a slant bow to conceal the only thing that could save you? Does this look like love, like the affection of a fond husband? Valerie groaned. All this was terribly true. She had tried again and again not to think so, but the old woman's words came home irresistibly to her mind. My child, my poor fatherless child, what will become of you? Oh, the child will be provided for, and so will you, no doubt, dear. You are not the only woman who has suffered and been deceived. I have no doubt Captain Balfern will place his child where it will be well cared for, and send it to school when it grows up. Valerie hugged her baby to her breast. No, no, my treasure, my darling, I have bought you at the price, and they shall not take you from me. Well, if you don't want to have it taken away, you had better let no one know where you are. And then this hard old woman, with her handsome face, as stern as if it were chiseled out of stone, left the room, and poor Valerie went through her dark hour alone. Mrs. Booth had triumphed. Time rolled on, and no news of Reginald came. The old woman was delighted at this at first, for it made her case stronger, and gave her poison time to work. But presently she became alarmed. She received her pension quarterly through the commander of the Coast Guard station, and there was generally a short letter from the admiral with it. He was too anxious about his son. At last he wrote that he feared he was either dead or a prisoner, for his vessel had been captured by the French. She did not speak of this to Valerie, who had ceased now to ask about her husband as Mrs. Booth had represented to her friends and acquaintances at Halborough that Valerie was a niece of hers, whose intellects were weak and who had had a misfortune. The poor girl had no opportunity of hearing any news from anyone else, for she was generally avoided or taken no notice of. Valerie's little girl grew up a delicate and strange child. She had no playfellows, 
and was always with her mother, until she was old enough to be allowed to go out on the beach by herself. She had the sea for a playfellow then, for she did not care to make friends with the other children she met there. They were too rough and rude in their gambols for her. She used to sit on the sand hills, looking at the distant ships dreamily, and singing some little French air that she had learned from her mother with her tiny treble. The people of Halborough gave her a wide berth, for they were a superstitious people, and fancied there was something elfish about her, with her strange songs and her beautiful golden hair and large grey eyes. Next to the sea, she loved the picture over the mantelpiece of the bedroom. That little girl was so quiet and nice that she wished she would come and play with her, she said. As may have been imagined, poor Valerie had little enough money. She and Mrs. Booth had to pinch sorely to make both ends meet, and, as a consequence, poor little Amy had but few toys or childish treasures. It was only natural that when she saw other little folk in possession of beautiful dolls, she should sigh at times for something like them, and then her mother would tell her that she should have one when her ship came home. By degrees, Amy began to look forward to that event, and to connect it with a great many things. Mama, will my little girl in the picture come and play with me when the ship comes home? She asked one day, and her mother covered her with kisses, and told her some fond, foolish story about the little girl, and how she was sailing in the ship, and what a beautiful ship it was, and how full of riches, and that they were all for this pet Amy of Mama's. How often the child's prattle wrung the poor mother's heart. There was once a terrible anguish for poor Valerie in the little one's words. It was during the summer when Halborough could boast its visitors and make believe it was a watering place. Valerie and the child were sitting on the sand hills, the mother working, and Amy at her usual occupation watching the sails in the offing, and wondering whether any of them belonged to her vessel. A merry group of little ones passed by, frolicking and laughing round their father. Papa, Papa was constantly on their lips, and was carried by their cheery voices to where the two were sitting on the sand hills. Amy looked very thoughtful as she watched them, and then, turning to her mother, said, Mama, other little girls have papas. Haven't I got a papa? Where is he? Valerie was almost choked with the effort to repress her anguish. She could not speak. Will he come, too, when the ship comes, Mama? Oh, how I wish I could go see it sailing in, with its purple silk sails, and its gold mast, and its fluttering flags. Will papa come with the ship, Mama? Yes, darling, yes, I hope. I cannot tell, I hope. And Valerie turned away, for the big tears that would not be denied were rolling down her cheeks. Think of that, Dolly, said Amy to her poor old battered wooden doll. When the ship comes home, Papa will bring us such lots of fine things, and you shall have such grand dresses, Dolly, 
and though there will be great fine wax dolls like the little girls at Seaview Villa, I love you the best still, next to Mama, Dolly. Amy was five years old now, but there was still no news of Captain Balfern. If there had been, of course, Mrs. Booth would not have told Valerie, but that Marilyn had been dead a couple of years now, and his widow, though she still remitted the pension as directed in his will, did not trouble herself to write to Mrs. Booth, so that the old woman was really ignorant of what had happened to Reginald. Valerie had ceased to look for his return, perhaps to care for it. She had had years to brood over the past, and his selfishness had become revealed to her. She knew that he had deliberately sacrificed her, her honor, perhaps her life, and that of his child, in order to save himself from discomforts comparatively light, when considered beside the misery to which he was knowingly condemning her. Her whole existence was wrapped up in her child now. She had no thought, no hope, except for her. In the winter of the year in which Amy's sixth birthday fell, there came a time of distress and trial for the little village of Halborough. In the spring there had been some very heavy and high tides, and the embankment of the cornlands had been broken through, and all the country was under water. Next, the spread fishery failed, but that was of little moment after all for the fish were chiefly sold as manure for the now flooded fields, and then there were very few visitors, for the floods frightened them away. Halbrook having been an island for two whole months at the beginning of the summer. When the winter came, came the tribulation. The inhabitants of this little place always kept up a hand-to-hand -hand fight with starvation. They were engaged all the spring and summer in laying by the store for the winter, and this year there had been nothing to lay by. The farmers round about, who were the rich people of the neighborhood, had all been ruined by the inundation, so the little village had to stand and face the famine alone and unassisted. With the autumn and the dense cold pots which it sucked up from the marshes came sickness, as usual. But this time the people were too enfeebled by privation, by want of food and clothing and fuel to withstand its ravages. The sickness was in the village all the autumn and on into the winter, and the churchyard at the back of the town at the edge of the marshes, so near the edge that some of the graves were half full of water within an hour after they were dug, was covered with fresh heaps of black mold for the people had not the time or the heart to turf them. One of the first victims of the sickness was old Mrs. Booth. It was not that she was suffering so severely from want as many of her neighbors, for the pension was enough to guard her against that, but she was frightened at the illness all around. She tried all sorts of preventives never moved out of doors, and was in a constant state of terror lest she should run risk of infection. The result was that she frightened herself into an illness which soon took an alarming turn, passed rapidly into the prevalent fever, one of a typhoid character, and the old woman died before the doctor could be summoned from Bradshaw. 
There was no resident surgeon, and Bradshaw was nearly four miles off. When Mrs. Booth felt death approaching, you may be sure that she did not look back upon her treatment of Valerie with much complacency. A deathbed is the only place in which some people can judge justly of their own actions, but it is, alas, too late to repair the wrongs then. Sorely, sorely did the old woman suffer remorse for her conduct, and with it there mingled a terrible doubt that, after all, Reginald might have loved Valerie very truly. He might, even now, be longing to find her, wondering where she was, and broken-hearted at her loss. But it was too late. She had not even the strength to tell Valerie of the deception she had practiced on her. All that she could do, just as the world was closing to her, and her soul was on the point of taking its flight, was to clasp Valerie's hand and whisper, I did it all for the best. I did all for the best. The old woman was buried, and the fact of her death reported by the commander of the Coscourt to Lady Balfern. He also mentioned that Mrs. Booth had left her niece and a child, as he supposed unprovided for. Lady Volfern, however, was not the sort of woman to trouble herself about that. We have had to keep the old hag for long enough. We can't be expected to provide for all her relations, she said, as she tossed the note into the fire. Mrs. Booth had left Volfern House long before her ladyship married Sir Matthew. Then came hard times for poor Valerie. The shop, as had been already mentioned, drove but a very small trade, and her stock of money was slender. After a hard struggle, she had long ago sold some of the contents of the jewel casket, and now one by one the more precious relics which she had laid aside had to be parted with. She and Amy had to live on very poor fare. The winter was but just begun, and the jewels, which she got miserable prices for, would hardly carry them through the trying time. Amy was always a delicate and sickly child, visitors to Halbruch as they passed her with their groups of healthy, rosy children, looked at her pityingly and exchanged glances full of meaning. Sometimes an unguarded whisper would reach Valerie's ear, Poor little thing, there's death in that face. Then she would snatch her child to her heart, gaze into her dear face, and try to read the doom which others saw there. But it was kindly veiled from her. She kissed the little white brow, and did not see the seal set there. She looked into the eyes, but did not perceive the strange fatal light in them. She smoothed the pale cheek, and did not feel the deadly damp. She toyed with the golden curls, and never saw their brightness was borrowed from light of another world. When the winter set in, Amy could not longer take her walk to the beach or sit on her favorite sand hills to look for the promised sail, but she used to sit at the window of the bedroom from which she could catch a glimpse of the sea. There she would stay for hours, and her mother, who now occupied the little room behind the shop, used to hear her incessantly talking to her little girl in the picture. 
By and by, poor Amy was too tired to sit at the window. She used to lie on her bed, with her eyes fixed on the portrait over the mantelpiece, sometimes talking to it and sometimes singing snatches of song in her low voice. I am so tired, Mama, was her constant complaint. She was sickening. Her mother saw it with what alarm can be readily imagined. She sent for the doctor, but he only shook his head and ordered a nourishing diet and wine. Then the jewel casket was once more in requisition, and what she had hoped to make last for the winter was sold at once. The jeweler at Bradshaw, to whom she had sent them, was astonished at the beauty of a large topaz which was among them, but he paid her none the more handsomely for his astonishment. Poor Valerie, friendless, helpless, and hopeless, it was no wonder that she turned to her father now. She wrote him a long, sorrowful letter, and implored his aid, not for herself but her child. She received no answer. Amy did not improve at all. She shrank almost to a skeleton, although Valerie procured the most nourishing food she could for her while herself, poor mother, lived upon dry bread. She determined to husband every shilling in order to purchase what was necessary for her child and to pay for medical attendance. Dr. Stanford, her physician, was a poor man with a large family and could not afford to attend patients for nothing. Besides, he never saw, although her house was a humble one, any signs of poverty about, and she seemed of so superior a rank in life that he never suspected her of being in want. So he took his guinea for a visit, never dreaming how ill she could spare it, though she never begrudged it, for was it not for her darling's safety? And now all the jewels were sold, and the money was going so fast she determined to search and see what there might be belonging to Mrs. Booth that she could convert into money. Almost the first thing she came upon was a box containing letters. One of them, written in Reginald's hand, caught her eye. She opened and read it. It was the one in which he had told Mrs. Booth to prepare for his wife's arrival. It was evident from this letter that Mrs. Booth had deceived her, she was, indeed, Reginald's wife, and he intended to acknowledge her on his father's death. But the discovery came too late to revive Valerie's love for him. She only saw in his solicitude for her comfort here. A selfish solicitude. She could detect selfishness now even in the very expression of his love for her. In another letter she read of the admiral's anxiety about the prolonged absence of his son, and his fear that he was either dead or a prisoner. When she had finished, she looked toward the bed where Amy was lying asleep. For her sake, for a child's sake, Reginald, dead or alive, you will absolve me from a portion of my bow. And she sat down and wrote once again to her father. For the first time she told him of her being really married, but she did not reveal her husband's name. She said she could not do so yet, 
but she entreated him to have pity, to come to her, to save a far dearer life than hers. Then, having dispatched her letter, she knelt by her child's bed and prayed to be supported and granted patience and strength until she received a reply. That night Amy was worse. She tossed in feverish restlessness, and the next morning seemed worn out. All through her delirium, Valerie had heard her calling to the little girl in the picture and asking her to come and put her cool hand on her hot forehead. When Dr. Stanford came, she told him of this. He looked at the picture and said, There's something odd about the expression of it. It's an old painting, a family portrait, I suppose. Perhaps it would be as well to turn its face to the wall till my little patient is better. In fever, even a staring pattern in a paper is injurious. So the picture was turned to the wall. That night Amy still continued delirious, but poor Valerie was so wearied with continuous watching that she could keep awake no longer. She dozed fitfully in her chair, too worn out to move or to do more than look to see that her child was safe in the bed. She never knew whether she was really awake or asleep, but about the middle of the night it appeared to her that she was roused by the child's talking and laughing. Amy was speaking to the little girl in the picture, and Valerie's impression was that, looking towards the mantelpiece, she saw the picture, in the bright moonlight, turned round again with its back to the wall. Next morning, however, she found it as she had left it the night before, but Amy was still weaker and fainter. For two days the child kept fading and fading, and yet no news from her father. At last the money failed. On the third day, when Dr. Stanford visited her, she had only a guinea in this world, and that was his fee. He was struck with the change in the child. Good heavens! This cannot last long, I fear. She is sinking from sheer weakness. Poor child. The food had grown short now. You must try and make her some strong beef tea. I will ride home as quickly as I can and send you some restoratives and tonics. This is a terrible change. He took his guinea, never noticing how poor Valerie had to struggle with an inclination to ask him to let her keep it and wait a little for his fee. He mounted his horse, flinging a penny to the boy who had held it and clattered away down the street. With hungry eyes, poor Valerie watched the urchin as he turned over the penny meditatively. She called to him, You're a good boy for watching the doctor's horse. See here, I'll give you all these for your penny, because you're a good boy. She emptied a bottle of sweets into a paper and held them out to him. They were all ones. He had known them as long as he could remember in Mrs. Booth's window. But he was to get them all for a penny, so it did not matter. He took his prize and Valerie clutched the money and hurried out. How carefully she carried that greasy coin. It was her last penny in the world, and she had to save her child's life. She went to the butcher's shop in the higher part of the town. Business was very slack even with him now. 
a poor neck of a mutton and a spare leg of beef was all that he had to display. Valerie walked by the shop twice before she could summon the courage to enter, but the recollection of the poor pale little face on the pillow at home nerved her, and she went in. The butcher was sitting on the chopping block, whistling gloomily, and cutting up a skewer for want of employing it. Will you sell me a pennyworth of meat, please? It's for my bird, and it likes beef best. The butcher stared at her, chopped a ragged end of the beef, and flung it towards her. She cut it up, laid down the penny, and hurried from the shop. That crazy niece of old Mrs. Pooh's, eh? I wonder how she gets on now her aunt's death, said the butcher, resuming his seat and his occupation. Valerie hastened home, and taking a peep at her child, went down to prepare the beef tea with the poor scrap of meat she had purchased. How tedious the process seemed! The tiny teacupful of water stood simmering slowly. It seemed an hour. She kept running up and down between the bedroom and the kitchen, trembling with anxiety and terror, for she could not but see that poor Amy was sinking faster and still faster. Don't smile, for heaven's sake, dear reader, but it was positively a race between the child's life and that necessarily slow process of cooking. At last, however, the beef tea was ready, and Valerie poured it into a cup, which she stood in a bowl of cold water to cool it, and then she hurried up with it to the child's room. As she opened the door, she saw Amy sitting up in the bed. Mama, Mama, my little girl is here to play with me, so the ship has come home. Mama, the ship has come home at last. And then the weary head fell back on the pillow with its golden profusion of curls. One soft sigh, a smile, as the darkening eyes turned towards Valerie, and the little spirit was free and fluttered up from the dark, desolate chamber into God's presence and all the brightness of heaven. Oh, my darling, my treasure! And Valerie was kneeling by the bedside, clasping the poor little corpse to her heart as if she could cling to the life that was gone and retain it but it was only the empty casket of her jewel that she held, and even the fire that was consuming her heart could not warm it into existence. She was obliged to yield to the bitter knowledge at last, and then stunned and numb with the mental agony she rose from her knees and sat on the edge of the bed, clasping the tiny dead hand, lost to everything save the recollection of her child and insensible to all outward sights and sounds. Valerie's father, after she left him, became even more reserved and self-contained than before. He saw no one, spoke to no one, save his pupils and those who employed him. He was a broken-spirited, miserable old man, and only kept alive by the old fire of his pride. But for that he must have succumbed, he was determined that no one should suspect him of grieving for one who had dishonored him. When Valerie's first letter reached him, he burst into a fit of ungovernable rage. Was it not bad enough that she reminded him of her dishonored existence, 
but that she must tell him that she had sold the Delebal jewels to support the child of her shame, and the old man cursed his daughter again. The second letter was as ineffectual as the first. He would not believe that she was married. A liar! The first Delebal that was a liar! She only employed the talents of her race to make her falsehood seem like truth, and he cursed her yet again. The day after this last letter reached him, a stranger came to Mrs. Martin's, inquired for Valerie, and insisted on seeing Monsieur de Laval. He was a wild, odd-looking man, clothed in rags, and with a bird as unkempt as a lion's mane. He would take no refusal, but forced himself into the old man's presence. Your daughter, Monsieur de Laval, where is your daughter? It was enough! The old man instinctively guessed who was his questioner. He sprang to the mantel shelf, snatched down the broken blade of his sword, and flung himself madly on the stranger. Wretch! Betrayer! Dishonor of the race of the Leval! Die! He shrieked as he launched fiercely at his throat. But the aged man was nerveless. The stranger, he was Reginald Balfern, put it aside with ease caught the broken weapon and flung it behind him. Fool! Weak old fool! Where is your daughter? Where is my wife? At that, Monsieur de Laval hesitated. Your wife? Yes, my wife. Mine. Reginald Balfour. Sir Reginald, if you like. Curse all titles, and all money, and all rank. My wife, if you and I haven't murdered her between us, where is she? But the father had fallen in a heap on the floor, with his head against the wall. Mon Dieu! Mon Dieu! And she was innocent. But Reginald Balfour was too fiercely moved to suffer him to lie there. He dragged him up, held him against the wall, and once again hissed his question into his face from between his clenched teeth. Where is she? And the old man, as best as he could gather his scattered senses, related hurriedly all that had happened. When he spoke of the two appealing letters, a fierce fire glittered in Reginald's eye, and he cried, Great God, you have murdered my child. And what have you done to mine? asked the old man. Reginald groaned. Let us in heaven's name do all we can to repair the wrong. How far? How far? Order a chase and a pair at once. He rushed to the bell and rang it until Mrs. Martin appeared. Order a chase and a pair, the fastest pair in the stables at once. Mrs. Martin hesitated. I order it. Sir Reginald Balfour of Balfour Hall, will that satisfy you? Curse the woman, she'd stand there staring while my wife and child are dying. Through all the strangeness of his appearance, there was something of the old Reginald's visible and Mrs. Martin recognized it and obeyed his orders. Before long, Monsieur de Laval and Reginald were tearing along the road to Halbrook as fast as two horses could gallop. Reginald Balfour had been nearly seven years a captive in a French prison. In the solitude of that long confinement, he had time to reflect on his past, and his character became softened by adversity. 
A real and deep love for his wife took the place of his old half-selfish admiration of and pride in her, and he bitterly repented the misery he had, as he knew only too well entailed upon her. When at length he obtained his freedom, he flew without a moment's delay to find her. He had been put ashore on the point of the Essex bank of the Thames nearest to Winchester, and had hurried at once across country to find her or her father. And now at length he was on the road to clasp her once more to his heart and ask her pardon. Valerie, sitting by the deathbed of Amy, did not take note of the hasty footsteps on the stairs, was only roused from her unconsciousness by the sight of her father and her husband. She recognized him at a glance, as they rushed into the room. But she never moved or changed color. She was ashy pale. She was stone cold. She seemed as dead as the child beside her. They were terrified at her immobility and paused on the threshold. Her father rushed forward, and falling at her feet cried out in broken accents, My child, my child! She did not turn her head, but the white lips moved mechanically, and she answered, My child, my child! Her husband knelt beside her, and seizing her listless right hand, covered it with warm kisses and warm tears but in her left lay the tiny hand of her dead child, and the chill from it smote her heart, and she remained stern, unplacable, passionless as a statue. Then the two men shrank from her in fear and anguish, and leaning on each other's shoulders, wept like children. Lady Volfern is a fine, handsome woman, but hers are the eyes that have looked into the eyes of sorrow. The sea closes above a sunken vessel, and its surface bears no recording ripple. The billowy green turf of the churchyard swallows up the dead and shows no sign, but a happiness gone down at the sea, a buried grief, leaves an indelible epitaph graven on the human brow, leaves an undying memorial lamp that burns in the eyes of those who have suffered and survived. And if the features are thus marked, how is the poor heart scarred? Wounds of warfare deeply seem and only to be effaced when death's hand crumbles the earthen casket whereon they are written. Lady Volfern is beloved for her acts of charity, but she is reserved and silent, and even those who bless her have seldom seen her. It is supposed that she and her husband, Sir Reginald, live no less happily together than other married people. She has several children. She is an exemplary wife, an exemplary mother. But at night, when the little ones are gone to bed and the nursery is deserted, Valerie, Lady Balfour, takes a key from a jewel casket, which contains nothing beside, and going to the nursery unlocks a cupboard there. In that cupboard there lie a child's clothes, of a very coarse material, carefully folded, with a pair of little shoes on top of them. Beside them you will see a mere log of a wooden doll, legless and armless, dressed in a common duster, tied round it with an old shoestring, a headless horse, with red spots, 
and a little wooden spade, worn out with much digging. This is what the key of the nursery cupboard has to reveal. End of section 11